I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome, friends. Um, those of you who are members of uh, the theology or of uh, uh, Credo House Ministries, welcome to the new membership. We're not recording yet. Are we going to start recording sometime as far as yes. the video? Yes, just to let you know, uh, everybody that's listening to this, uh, starting our next broadcast. So the broadcast after this, we are delving into the zone of videotaping and HDR podcasts, which is kind of silly in some ways. But if you're if you're really curious of uh, what does it look like when we're in here high-fiving or pointing our fingers at each other or any of those things, uh, starting, our nose. <laughs> starting next broadcast, we will videotape those. And then you might be noticing on the right side of most of the pages on our website a members-only area. And basically what we're doing is uh, we uh, the Lord has given us a huge vision, we feel like. And uh, in order to accomplish that vision, we have to have many, many partners with us to be able to do just all the wacky, crazy things that we're excited about doing. And uh, and so for our, those who, who lock arms with us and partner with us at, um, at either the $24 a month level or $49, a month level on our membership, you'll actually be able to see the video edition of uh, Theology Unplugged starting the next broadcast. So we're setting the studio up right now. It's kind of a small studio, so we have to use a lot of wide-angle lenses and things like that. So uh, we're getting that set up right now, uh, the next broadcast. So if you would like to be in on that, we would love to have you be in on what we're doing at the Creed House with our membership. All right, very good. Sam, welcome to uh, uh, the Credo House. It's good to be here. It's home. <laughs> Tim, how have you been doing? Good. You know, things are going good. We're, we've got tons of stuff going on here, and I've been doing a lot of iPhone app development lately. Yeah. So, yes, working on the discipleship app. So. Tell us all the app names you've got. Oh, my goodness. It, folks, the Lord has blessed us at the Credo House. <laughs> uh, we have the, some of the craziest app names that you've ever considered. So we have Theology. Theology, yeah. there's an app for that. We have Discipleship. Church history. But there's not an app for these yet. Theology, uh, there is an app for, but yeah, they all exist on my computer right now. Okay. Yeah, not in one of them exists on my phone too. Discipleship uh, is working; it's about ninety five percent done. Uh, church history. So we will we have the church history app that'll be coming out. Uh, world religions. We have the world religions app. Salvation. Salvation app. That, we have New Testament, Old Testament. New Testament, Old Testament. Uh, Christ and culture. Check this out. World religions. You already said so, that. Did I already say yeah. that? <laughs> we have 15. Uh, Bible map, Credo, Credo app. Uh, all of these we're, we're super excited uh, to get in your hands. We have Bible and archaeology. Uh, theologians will be an app name that we have. All sorts of different apps. Uh, we're really uh, feel like the Lord has allowed us to, uh, you know, like a U version has actually developed. Some people develop the U version app, which is a Bible app here in the Credo House. So they're drinking the Luther latte while they're coding uh, the U version app. But we feel like the Lord has blessed us and given us the vision of part of what we do is to have a suite of apps that will come along and really make about Bible difficulties, make things accessible. Yeah, well, you can't say that on air. Well, before it's broadcast, I'll go and search. <laughs> 
But yeah, so we've got tons of apps. By the coming. time you search it, it will have already been taken. Yeah, and the apps we're developing right now are their iOS, their iPhone, iPad, and their Universal apps. So they work. You just have to buy it once to get it on your iPhone, iPod, or iPad. And we are actually praying for the Lord to send somebody who wants to volunteer their time to take the apps that I develop in in the iPhone world and then uh, port them over to the Android world. And so if if you would if you're developing Android apps right now and you're like, geez, I wish I could really make a difference in the kingdom of God with this app uh, development skills that I have. Please send me an email or get on our website and let me know because I would love to partner with you uh, to bring all of these 15 different apps that we're developing right now uh, into the full Android world as well. All right. Well, speaking of Bible difficulties apps or difficult passages or theological issues passages, uh, that is what we've been going through uh, here in studio for the last few weeks. Uh, I think it's been probably 10 weeks now we've been covering the uh, what we believe to be the most significant uh, difficult issues or problem passages in the Bible. Once again, Sam uh, has a book coming out, two volumes coming out on this that cover quite a few of these, and I'm sure... This one that we're going to be covering today, Sam, you uh, tackled in your work as well, because this is, I, I would say, at least from a the standpoint of a pulling a verse and, and looking at it by itself, it stands out as the most shocking for many people because they would say, you as a Protestant, doesn't this do away with the entire Reformation in one verse? Uh, quite a few Catholics will uh, rightly bring this up because we need to deal with it as a problem uh, for Protestants. We believe in a doctrine called salvation by faith alone, or really more particularly justification by faith alone. Either one of you guys want to tackle a, a quick rundown on what justification by faith alone is? Uh, high level, it is saying that when God in his wisdom and in his plan, uh, basically said, this is how mankind will come to me. These are my terms for mankind, for human beings uh, to be adopted into my family. The way that that is done by God's uh, viewpoint and his, the way he set it up is that we would come to him only on the basis of us putting our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So it's not uh, this uh, multi-level marketing scheme where you have to get enough people under you. It's not that you have to pay enough money. He wants all people at all times, wherever you live, if you're a poor kid that lives in Uganda, all people can come to God and be adopted into his family by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is how you earn or how you acquire salvation. And justification, by that specific term, we typically mean the declaration by God that we are, through faith alone, righteous in his sight. The righteousness of Christ has been reckoned unto us, or as theologians say, imputed to us. Um, And so we receive this not by virtue of our efforts, our deeds, our meritorious works. We simply, by faith alone, embrace the righteousness that God makes available uh, that has been obtained for us by his son in his life, death, and resurrection. And so we are declared 
to be righteous in his sight through faith alone. And which sparked the Reformation, uh, which you alluded to the Reformation, was that uh, the church, uh, institutionalized church of the day, had gotten to a place where uh, it seemed like there were many things that one must do, uh, many things on a to-do list that you must check off in order to have the hope that you might possibly uh, be saved when and you die. And not do. Yeah, to and things that you must do. not do. That's right. So a long list of saying, here's your list, good luck with it, and uh, you know, hopefully by the time you die you'll be able to get to heaven. Mm-hmm. And that uh, the call of the Reformation was back to the simplicity of verses like John 3.16 of just on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ alone that we are saved. We, um, a lot of the people, I just looked at the... Uh, national debt in our country i was seeing some forecast and stuff over the next few years and talked about how we are actually at 50 trillion rather than our normal thought of a 12 trillion dollar debt because of the the promissory notes that we have uh quite a big debt you know what? Someone told me this at the Credo House a few days ago, and it could be a total lie. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. I didn't do the math, but they said if from the time of Christ, every single day from the time of Jesus, if a million dollars every day was sent to the United States to cover the debt, by 2012, you still wouldn't have enough money to cover the debt we have. <laughs> now, now, I'm sure this has something to do with justification by faith alone. It does. It does. <laughs> okay, it does. Okay, let's... It does uh, whenever I think of uh, having to work these things off um, okay. and what it takes, Twelve, $12,500 per family or per person per year in America to just get the $12, million, $12 trillion paid off. But you, you come up with game plans to pay things off, right? Mm-hmm. The Bible speaks of us as being born in debt, you know, a massive debt, and we acquire debt all our life. I love the parable where the where the uh, the the guy owes his, his the king a, a certain amount of money, and I don't think we really get it. I think it says a hundred talents, but we don't really get what that was trying to say. I mean, it's like trillions of dollars. It's like a debt you can never pay off. You can never plan it, but we make plans and we try to plan paying off yeah. fifty trillion dollars. How are we going to pull this off? You know, that's what the next campaign is about. Many times in our lives, that's what we think. What's our game plan? How yeah. do we get to zero? zero at least, and we'll be happy mm-hmm. at getting to zero. But what we're saying when we say that justification is by faith alone is that we're saying, Sam used this word, imputation. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's an accrediting term, an accounting term. We're saying that, you know what? You are in trillions of dollars of debt. Everybody is. And you don't plan about how every single day, by your own ingenuity and your your own abilities to to come up with plans that are that are uh, uh, feasible and, and workable, and, and that you work at it every single day to get to the point where you're at zero, we're saying that by trusting or placing your faith in Christ, you not merely get to zero, but you get imputed His entire account. Mm. You are seen as in Christ. That's what we talk about it, in Christ. And so this is a wonderful statement. This is an incredibly big statement that we make because we don't know how to get out of this debt. And we're saying, hey, everyone, here's the good news. Um, you, you don't have to you, – you, there's no way you could ever pay it off. Don't think you can. It's insulting to God. You trust in Christ. That's what. That's the drastic measures that God had to go through himself to get us out of this debt. Um, and, and we, the, the, this is this is the primary message that we feel like we can bring hope to because if you do have to work yourself out of this debt, we're, it's we're all in trouble. Well, and I think so too. Not only are you in debt, 
but you have a bad spending habit too. Yeah. And so it's not like God says, okay, I know you're in debt, but get on a budget, go through these Dave Ramsey courses, make sure that you are that you have done See, your this part. This working out, Sam. I'm really yeah, come on, do, Sam. I, I, I know you're Work gonna with bring us it, here. You're going to bring it home. Work I with know. us here, brother. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm on the road now. But you know, he's not saying that you got to basically do your part. You got to show me that, okay, if I cover your debt, you're never going to you're never going to spend more than you have ever again. But he's saying you have a bad spending habit and you're in debt so much that you can never get out of it and just come run into me. That's all that you got to do and I will give you all of my inheritance. Justification, getting out of debt, getting our bank account to look like Christ is by faith alone. And Period. that's in Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, he didn't wait for us to get right, didn't wait for us to get our finances in order, our life in order. He died for us at the absolute moment that we absolutely needed him, and that's why he is a living and active Savior. So, you guys, you guys have been waxing eloquent yes. with, a great, with a beautiful illustration. And so then I'm going to ask you, if what you just said is true, then how do you account for the statement of James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Therefore, a person gets out of debt by works and not by faith alone. That's the way a lot of people would read it, right? I mean, that, that stands out, and, and it's jolting. Um, it creates a significant problem, at least at face value, we can admit, right? Mm-hmm. Well, not for Martin Luther. Just say the book of James doesn't belong in the New Testament canon. (laughs) Next problem passage, please. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Well, Sam, so I'll use use your technique from the last broadcast and say, well, let's keep reading. Okay? And so verse 25 says, And in the same way... So this is going to be the parallel. This is the illustration, uh, just like what Paul gave us in the book of Hebrews. <laughs> just, I threw that in purposely. But anyway, uh, <laughs> just as the writer of Hebrews gave us, verse 25, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Um, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so uh, I would say that James is definitely, and we'll probably keep unpacking this, but I would say, well, let's, what was Rahab's faith? Or, or what was Rahab's works? Let's say, if, if we just say that she was justified by her works, but did, was it just purely Rahab's works? Was it saying, like, look at this total pagan prostitute lady that was just as damnable as could be, and she did a good thing? And for some uh, odd reason, she just did this work. Apart from any ideology, she just did this thing. And by doing this thing, by saying, you know, if everybody goes and lets strangers into their houses, then you will be able to be saved and be with God by doing a good thing. And I would say, no, she did a good thing, but the thing that she did was indicative of the faith that she had, that that was not just random folks outside who were wanting to come and take Jericho. Those were the people of God that God had rescued from the Red Sea, that God had been sending uh, through uh, the desert wandering, and now they were at the very doorsteps of entering into the promised land. And she had bought into God. She had bought into the kingdom of God and had bought into these are God's people. And so, so just like Rahab, believing that this was the work of God, and with that belief, 
she acted in a way that was indicative of the belief she had and uh, showed to the world that, you know what, even though these are my uh, biological people behind me inside this wall, I am instead going with the people of God in my actions. So it sounds like the key to answering this question and resolving this difficulty, at least as I see it, is how we're defining the word faith. Because yeah. it appears to me when I read James 2, beginning with verse 14, extending down through the end of the chapter, verse 26, James has in mind two different types of faith. Because he starts out in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, what faith, James? Well, the kind of faith which simply says, I know God, I'm trusting in Christ, but a faith that in fact yields no fruit, a faith that does not, as you just described to him, manifest itself in certain kinds of righteous deeds. And so um, uh, James goes on and talks about, you know, you see somebody who's lacking in food and your response to them is to pat them on the back of the head in a rather condescending way and say, go, go in peace, be warm and be filled. And then his question in verse 17, or then he says, he says, what good is that? What, what does it accomplish? And the answer is nothing. So also faith by itself. So a faith that is alone in the sense that it does not produce works is dead. And then James goes on to, to, to you know, he kind of expands and unpacks the argument. Uh, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So again, two kinds of faith. Anyone can give verbal intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel. They can say, yeah, I believe it. I trust it. But is that saving faith? And James' point is, if it's not the kind or quality of faith that bears within itself, as it were, the uh, good works of obedience and compassion and kindness and loyalty and the sort of thing that we saw in Abraham, the, thing, the sort of thing we saw in Rahab, James is saying that's not the faith that saves. The faith that saves works. Can, yeah. I, re- can I relate this to the one last week when we said the type of faith that that uh, of the soils. Remember last week mm-hmm. we talked about the soils and the four yeah. soils. One Satan uh, took up, the two others were uh, among the rocks and the thorns, and then one lasted and produced. Um, we, we said last week, can the type of faith that does not have perseverance save? We didn't say it in so many words, but can I put it in that context and say the same thing here? Can the type of faith that does not last save? Well, no, because the type of faith that saves lasts. Can the type of faith that does not produce, help somebody in need, save? No, because the type of faith that saves does produce these types of things. So what we're continuing in this theme, maybe, am I wrong, in saying that there is a type of faith that does not save, but the type of faith that does save will have certain characteristics. Yeah, and in fact, if you read the Gospel of John, John talks about those who believed in Jesus. But yet they were not followers. They did not uh, um, uh, do the things that he commanded. So there's a kind of belief. There's even a kind of, we could even say there's a kind of discipleship. Mm -hmm. You know, a willingness to submit to the teachings of the Bible and the Christian uh, Christian faith that does not flow out of a born-again, regenerate heart. 
Um, let me throw in a little something that's going to sound a little bit technical, but forgive me, it has a point. Um, I, there was a phrase that was used during the time of the Protestant Reformation that has always helped me. Um, and if, if the people don't know Latin, don't worry. But there's a faith, uh, excuse me, there's a phrase that goes like this. Sola fides justificat, sed non fides quiesc sola. I think I've said that before, but a whole different yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just when you were speaking in tongues. Yeah, right? that's right. <laughs> Sola fides justificat. Faith alone justifies. Sed non fides quies sola, but not the faith which is alone. Let me say it again in English. Faith alone justifies, but not the faith which is alone. The point being, yes, faith alone is that which receives the righteousness of Christ unto salvation. But it's not the faith which is alone. It's the faith that also bears within itself the, the potential and the power to produce works that testify to its reality. And I think Rahab is, is a great continual example because the spies come in and Rahab is kind to them. But then this crazy thing happens where they say, we're going to walk around the city seven times and the wall is going to fall down. A wall that has withstood many a battle is just going to fall down. And Rahab, you need to just put this uh, outside to let us know not to destroy your area. And she could have just said, man, these guys are nuts. These people are crazy, and I ju- we just got done remodeling our kitchen. Uh, there's no way that we're going to do this because, you know, this city is going to be dist- – you know, this is just – this is too much. It's too much for me to handle. We're not going to put that on the doorpost. Let's keep our plans for tonight, and let's just go on with our life. But she had a type of faith where she heard even something that sounded ridiculous – like we're going to walk around the city seven times and somehow this amazing wall and this well-fortified city is going to fall down. And she had the faith in a supernatural, powerful God who is communicating his reality through the people that were talking to her, and she did it. She said, no, let's all get in here. You guys cancel all your plans tonight. Let's get in here, put that outside, and we will be saved. And we just see that that is a faith that has incredible action, and it's faith-filled actions. Why does James sound, I mean, you mentioned earlier that Martin Luther wanted to get rid of the book of James kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek way, but maybe it's more serious than that. Why does James sound so much different than Paul? I mean, I'm reading Paul right here in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and it just seems like the polar opposite. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. I mean, Paul's emphasis here is, God wants nothing to do with anybody being able to boast. And he doesn't, he doesn't give a parenthetical statement here right after he says that or before he says that. But James seems to have all these qualifiers. Why the difference between the letter of James and Ephesians or Romans? I think it has to do with the difference between root and fruit. And what I mean by that is this. Paul is addressing the issue of Root. He is saying that um, works are not the root of salvation. They do not produce salvation. They are not the source or the cause of salvation. James is addressing the issue of fruit, and he's saying they are the fruit of salvation. They do, um, uh, the works do give an indication to the reality of the faith that we claim to have in Christ. So we as 
as Protestants, as evangelicals would say, that works do not factor in when we're talking about the root, the source, the cause, the ground of our justification. But works very much do factor in when we're talking about the fruit or the, the, the product or the blessings of salvation. So I think that Paul and James are addressing two different issues. Paul is addressing those who were claiming that their works were sufficient to save. James is addressing those who were saying their faith without works was sufficient to save. And so they're, they're talking about two entirely different problems. Uh, James wasn't dealing with Pharisees. James wasn't addressing people who said, oh, look at, all, look at my religious heritage. Look at my meritorious efforts. Look at my obedience to the law. Uh, that secures for me uh, a safe standing with, with God in Christ. Uh, that's not what James was addressing. James was addressing people who said, oh, yeah, I believe. Uh, I, I have confidence in the, 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 the truths of the gospel, but I have no concern for those in need. I couldn't care less about my brothers. I feel no sense of responsibility to share um, what God has blessed me with, with those who are hungry, with those who are cold. I don't need to love anybody. I don't need to display the kindness of Christ in my life. I've got a faith that stands alone, and that is enough. And James is saying that's not the kind of faith that Paul's talking about. James would say the kind of faith that Paul's talking about is the faith that will blossom in the fruit of the spirit of goodness and deeds of righteousness. And, and you just said something, and I don't want to miss this because it, it can get passed over, and it's coming to a point that I think I'm trying to at least explore in my own mind. You said it's not, to James, that's not the kind of faith that Paul was trying to talk about. James was James is often thought of as the earliest book in the New Testament that was written um, before uh, the Pauline epistles, before... Ephesians that I just read in chapter 2, verse 8, before Romans chapter 3 and uh, the apart from works where, where Martin Luther translated it, faith alone, um, before all these things. And so it, it would seem that at least from, uh, from our standpoint, James is countering something that is out there that is already dug deep within his congregation. So writing a very pastoral letter to his people, and James is frankly frustrated he's just frustrated that people are are claiming something yet doing something different and so he's already having to deal with implications of pauline doctrine not that he comes in and says hey i don't like paul's stuff you know let me give you some alternative here he's saying hey we've gotten it deep down in our psyche in our thinking in our doctrine in our doctrinal statements that salvation is by faith alone and what an interesting thing that is mm-hmm. I mean, to see how early this must have already been within the Christian communities to where people are already abusing it. You know, they're already abusing salvation by faith alone mm-hmm. by saying it can be just merely this, this head thing that happens to us. It can be this mere profession. And so early on, we have the, the first epistle that is written dealing with the abuse of what? The salvation by faith or doctrine of justification by faith alone. And, and and I think we need to remember, too, that all Scripture that we believe is all Scripture is has dual authorship. 
So every verse of the Bible is written by a person and is also written by God. And we believe that it's dual authorship. So then the question is also, why does God have James write James and for Paul to write what Paul wrote? And, uh, you know, I agree with you and, and with Sam, too. I think the reason, even as Christians, we can still be blockheaded sinful morons, basically. And I think as we walk down the path of life, we have two ditches on the right and the left. And if we start veering to the right of thinking that it's going to be all our works that's going to get us into heaven, Paul is there saying, don't fall into this ditch. It is not that you're putting your hope in the wrong thing. Reorient yourself. Let the Word of God redirect you on the path of life. But then if we start veering on the left side of the ditch, and we start thinking then that that our works then have nothing to do with, with, with what we do, and we just spend the life on the couch with our trust in Jesus, and we don't ever do anything, we don't ever make a difference in the world, then James is there to slap us silly and say, what are you thinking? No, you need to reorient yourself, let my book redirect you, and get back in the middle of the path and make a difference in your world as you put your trust in Christ. And that's, imp- that's an important point. Um, one of the things that, that you know, we do on this broadcast and that you guys do so well in uh, the Credo House and the discipleship and theology programs is we, we want to teach people to learn how to read the Bible in the way that it was intended by its authors. And we must never we must never assume that every biblical author in every book is addressing the same problem. They address a multiplicity of different contexts with people who are making differing claims. And just as you use the imagery there, Tim, it's very helpful, the two ditches on the left and the right. If you think that every New Testament author is addressing the danger that's on the left, you're going to be in real trouble because sometimes they're addressing the danger that's on the right. And in this case, uh, maybe this will help people grasp it, it's the difference between cause and consequence. Paul is addressing those who thought works were a cause of salvation. And he's saying, no, they're not. Faith alone justifies. James is addressing those who in affirming faith alone justifies, says works aren't necessary as a consequence. And he's saying, oh, yes, they are. So, in fact, Michael, the, the Ephesians 2 passage that you read, the 8 through 10 of chapter 2, really addresses the, the point, I think, perfectly. Paul says, for we know that we are, just, uh, we are saved by grace alone, through faith, that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So you hear that. And it sounds like Paul is saying, well, obviously works are not the cause in any sense of the term of the salvation that we have. He says it clearly, by grace alone, through faith, which is a gift of God. Well, is Paul then giving fuel to the problem that James is having to address? And the answer is no, because in the very next verse, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, Mm -hmm which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James is simply taking that verse, verse 10, and saying, yeah, let me talk about those good Mm -hmm. works for which we have been created that are the consequence of a legitimate saving faith. And for you to say you have faith and you don't have those kinds of works for which we have been created, that God ordained that we should walk in them, can that faith save you? James is saying, no, it can't. Mm -hmm. So they're not speaking at cross purposes, they're speaking to different audiences who are appealing either to the presence of works or the absence of works for different reasons. And so when you understand that Paul is addressing those who want to bring in works as the cause of salvation, 
James is addressing those who want to dismiss works as the consequence of salvation. And when you see them speaking to two different problems, you realize they're not at all in contradiction. They are perfectly harmonious with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, combining this with last week's and, and what we talked about last week and the, the issues of faith, because there, there is always going to be something. It produces perseverance. It produces uh, some type of change in life, you know, and we do, it's hard to judge exactly always what that is going to look like in every particular. And so we get scared and we, we say, well, we shouldn't in any sense judge these things. But I think what this is doing for us, along with last week, is it's saying, We've got to have some type of way to to check to see if we have real faith. And as pastors, uh, you know, in a pastoral way, to say that we've got to call upon people to examine to see if the faith that they have is really, you know, which type of soil that is. And and there are ways to be able to judge that. There are ways to be able to to figure out whether or not the type of faith that you have is a truly saving faith. Yeah, you think about, if I can interrupt, you think about the people we come across all the time who say, hey, I, I walked an aisle when I was seven years old. I raised a hand in a revival meeting. I signed a decision card. You know, I got down on my knees when I was watching Billy Graham on TV. And yet for the last 20 or 30 years of their lives, they've been devoid of any vibrancy in terms of relationship with Christ. They've lived in immorality. They've given way to multiplicity of addictions and yet they they want to point back. Oh, yeah, but wait a minute. I raised my hand. I've walked the aisle. I wept, you know, when Just As I Am was being repeatedly sung, as if somehow the faith, I put that word in quotes, that emerged in that experience was the kind of faith that Paul was talking about. It isn't. James is saying, if the kind of faith that you experienced back then was what Paul was describing it would have yielded and produced the kind of works that I'm describing. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, we hope that this uh, has been beneficial for you all hey, and covered another problem passage. Can I do a quick plug? Because I know you're not going to plug it. Uh, your book, Increase My Faith, is really written around this. And uh, if you search Amazon for Michael Patton, Increase My Faith, he basically takes you on a diagnosis in some ways of uh, if you're saying... I want to increase my faith. It feels like my heart's dead. It feels like I have doubt. Uh, I want to increase my faith. Uh, you really walk somebody through uh, a lot of steps. Yeah, and the last chapter is all about the parable of the soils and the consent aspect of it. There has to be some type of consent. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Um, we will uh, rejoin you next week and continue our unplugged sessions here. Thanks for joining us, guys. It's uh, great to see you every week. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.